The following was recorded by the Zen Society, located in Shemong, New Jersey, near Philadelphia. Please visit us at thezensociety.org. By the power and the truth of our efforts this day, may all beings everywhere be free of sorrow and suffering, and the causes of sorrow and suffering. May all beings be content, and possess the causes for contentment and abundant prosperity. May all beings everywhere live in peace. This is our prayer. This is our intention. guess a lot of people went to the Trump rally. (laughs) (laughs) I remember once being very small in a very large cathedral. The sun was powerful that day, so powerful that it created brilliant beams of color as it penetrated the thick stained glass windows. I thought I was seeing the light of heaven. I suppose I was. My mother and I were seated in a pew near the sanctuary. My father was far, far away, up high in the choir loft. He was playing the organ, deftly picking the right sounds out of the 8,000 pipes at his disposal. Two hands on different keyboards both feet on the pedals, head nodding to cue the choir, eyes skipping from his music to the mirror set up to monitor movement in the sanctuary. My catechist had already succeeded in getting across the idea that merely being a body in a pew did not constitute attendance at Mass. One must be present, So I expressed concern to my mother. If Dad is busy playing the organ, how can that count? She told me that every note he played was a prayer. I was impressed. More recently, I've rediscovered this simple truth in the care with which Buddhist monks prepare tea, in the joy of flower beds well tended, and in the simple act of ironing a shirt. If anything we do in this life matters, then everything we do matters. There isn't living and living. The only difference is how completely we give ourselves to living, how we let ourselves be part of the cosmos and be lived. There isn't light and light, trash and trash. There is no alternate utopia running parallel to this life. This is it. Sometimes saying prayers keep us from being prayers. Words come then not in response to life, but in substitution for life. We think the map is the territory and we are untouched by the smells and wonders of actual living. 
For me, the orientation that I want to embrace more and more is toward receiving my life, toward a continual intention to make room for mysteries way within me. I do not think we can go deeply into ourselves, but life seeking itself can go deeply in us. We can be infused, loved, and fathomed by it. And when we are, we cannot help but sing out our joy. We need that activity in us to be ourselves. I once witnessed this ecstatic process in a small human creature. I was at the beach, walking along the water's edge, when a young child ran on very unsteady legs into the water. It was the infant's intensity that caught my attention. I looked for the mother. She was some distance away and seemed comfortable enough about her child's safety not to interfere with what was happening. The child, a boy with wet sagging diapers, ran into the water with that half-weaving, half-stumbling motion of infants who have just learned to walk. I first thought he would fall and then that he would non-stop uh, would not stop until he was in over his head but this child knew when he was in deep enough seeing him with the long island sound lapping against his chubby thighs i realized that from his perspective these small waves were giants he was with something very big his small body was intense with concentration. He was thumb, thrumming like an instrument standing there in the water. Then he turned and, still deep in the experience, walked unsteadily out of the water and over the thin strip of pebbles at the water's edge. Then he made a kind of circle and went right back into the water up to his thighs for another experience of sea. He did this perhaps seven or eight times, as if verifying what this wet, cold living thing called water was to him. I could feel the high excitement of his experience even yards away from him. Finally, fully satisfied, he stood in his wet diapers and began an unintelligible but eloquent speech to the water, to the gulls, to the sand, to the world. This baby was obviously not yet speaking with words, but he was certainly speaking with his heart. The sound was beautiful. He was tell-singing his experience with arms outflung. It was a deep purple, a deep burble, a joyful noise to the Lord. Only after naming his experience in his own personal language did he notice me noticing him. A shy look came over his face, and he did a fast exit out of the water, over the pebble strip, and then around back into the water, finishing with his speech gurgled at the top of his voice. The smile on his face and the sidelong look he gave me told me that he knew we both knew what all this felt like, including the joys of repetition. We were in this together. We are in this world 
together. We trust that we are intended for ecstasy, that each day we are meant to be steeped in mystery, and so to remember our true lives. Then we will not be able to stop the natural response, the living of praise. Isn't that cute? <laughs> so, the way we normally do it is we go through life looking for things to be grateful for. Something happens to us in our life, someone gives us something, and we are grateful for it. In Zen, gratitude has to do with a way of being. Appreciation is an attitude that one brings to every moment of his or her life. So I would like to ask you to consider how much of your day today was with appreciation? And if it was, was it with appreciation for something different, new, how much of your day was grateful? Or was it grateful because spring had showed up for about 24 hours? You're saying. When our gratitude is about something, either some person or something or some event, it's about thank you. But gratitude, again, in authentic spirituality, has to do with how we hold life. So, as I have said to my students for 42 years, everything is practice, and practice is everything. And as the author of these beautiful words said to us tonight, everything matters. If anything matters, then everything matters. And the gratitude and, and the appreciation and she tried to convey to us in the story of the little boy, is a way of holding life, whatever life is in the moment. It is not just about being thankful for something new. So I'd like you to consider today how much of your day was spent thinking about life, thinking about it in such a way that we measure it. So often we find ourselves in our heads measuring life. The mind is so easily measuring life this way or that way. And all of our measurements, no matter how simple they may be, or no matter how profound they may be, again, are based on some concept or idea we hold, such as the topography being life, we hold again, as an idea. And how much of our day is spent in, no matter how well it is, wanting more? Or no matter how maybe not so well it is, wanting better or different? When we live life in this way, we fail to recognize how much we rob ourselves of the life there really is. And any moment. You know, Jesus said to his students, the kingdom of God is everywhere. 
and you can see it if you have the eyes to see it. To have the eyes to see it has to do with, again, our intention or what we are looking for. And most of the time, we are looking for some idea, something that's part of our story about life. We are looking for that. And one of the paradoxes of egocentricity, or that part of our consciousness called ego, is that ego absolutely sees only what it's looking for. The mind sees only what it's looking for. So what does that mean? It means that if I have some idea of how the day should be, that is what I'm looking for. And I never really see the day. What I see is either my expectation of the day or my disappointment about the day. And my expectation or my disappointment is not a function of what really the day was like, because I never really see that, but again, of my expectation. So in Zen, we have this saying, in the beginner's mind, there are many possibilities. In the experts, there are few. And what the saying means is about the little boy. For the little boy, the moment was perfect just as it is. Because he brought with him, as most little boys and girls bring with them at that age, no expectation of life. Our minds and our hearts at that age are not yet contaminated by the story we call life. Is not yet contaminated by either what others tell us about the way life should be or should not be and our attachment to those stories. It is essential that we understand <laughs> that in spiritual practice, the practice of mindfulness or the practice of meditation, the aim is to cut through that conditioning so that wet feels like it really does. This afternoon I mentioned this in the seminar I gave that I, when I remember one day my father, who was uh, raised on a farm, uh, saying to us, we had, uh, you know, we're eating fr some fried chicken, and we were like really enjoying it. And he said, "You, you don't even know what fried chicken tastes like." You say, "It does not taste anything like it does with the chicken you buy at the store." You're saying, and what he was talking about was chicken not contaminated by medicine and you know antibiotics and all the other stuff they do to the chicken you're saying what would it be like to just taste water for the really very first time now that sounds quite silly just hearing it but it is very true most of us we drink water because we're thirsty but what if we were to take a glass of water and actually spend some time with it and taste it and allow it to settle on our palates. Training in mindfulness has to do with smelling what it is you are smelling. Now most of the time, we don't even smell what it is to smell because like everything else, our expectations of what it is we are smelling is always impeding or thwarting the natural ability the body has <coughs> to smell. I often think of, especially when I spend time in the mountains where my family's cabin is up in Pennsylvania, 
I often try to imagine, you know, being alone up there, I try to imagine what it was, you know, in the times of when Native Americans wandered those mountains. Certainly it had to be very, very different experience for them than it is for most of us. In Zen, appreciation of the moment involves a willingness on my part to immerse myself in the moment just as it is and to have this intimate experience with it. Like the story of the little boy, again, who had repeatedly ran in and out, in and out, in and out, and in feeling the water, probably knew more about the way water felt on his body than most of us do. Most of us go to the beach and we bring to getting into the water our expectation for the temperature to be a certain way. And whatever that expectation is, if the water is too cold, it's not that the water is too cold. It's that the water is too cold according to our expectation of the water. And the same is true about everything else. If we can begin to appreciate how we impede and thwart our natural senses to experience life as it is, we can begin to then appreciate a kind of sad reality. And that is, as Einstein once suggested, perhaps the percentage of life that we really experience is so very, very minute, so small. And how sad it would be to go through a lifetime never really experiencing it fully, just as it is. And in fact, most people do, and that is why most people, when death comes near, find it so much of a struggle to die. Not because death is scary, but the thought of never really fully living life is even scarier, is even scarier. So in Zen, the aim and objective is to cultivate the ground, to pour myself into the moment, whatever the moment is, whatever it is I am doing, whether I am on my knees praying, whether I am on the cushion meditating, or whether I am, as I get to do daily, scooping dog poop off the lawn in the back for my puppy and my beagle. To be with that moment with a very peculiar attitude that this moment, whatever it is that I am doing, is like no other moment. The Japanese call it Ichigo Ichi. Ichigo Ichi is a way of living your life where you approach each moment as profound and sacred. Whether you see it or not initially, you can re define your ability to see it again. You can awaken to your original sight to see it again when you approach it, not as some expectation of the story you call life, but as a pure, direct experience with that moment. You can be scooping poop off the lawn, or you can be in prayer and have the same sacred experience. It's always about, as the writer suggests in her writing, how we enter into the moment and how we open ourselves to allow the moment to enter into us, to enter into us. And there is a word for that, an ancient word for that, communion. 
to commune or to have or take communion is to not only enter into the moment, but to allow the moment to enter into you. And in order to allow the moment to enter into you, in order to allow love to be fully experienced, most of us never fully experience love, because not because we don't love the other person, but because we do not allow their love to enter into us. This immersion, this mutual immersion it, that has this me entering into and allowing the moment to enter into me as well is the communion they talk about and make reference to when they use such a term. What is always getting in the way of real communion with life again and again is our inability, at least initially, to distinguish between the road and the road map. Most of us think life is the road map and we live according to the map. You know, we live according to, well, you shouldn't do that that way or you should do that that way and so forth. And rather than literally, you know, dropping into the ocean and experiencing the waves pouring over you and even taking you out of control. I found it. <laughs> and I want to read to you the lyrics from one of my favorite songs from one of my favorite songwriters. I never saw the morning till I stayed up all night. I never saw the sunshine till you turned out the light. I never saw my hometown until I stayed away too long. I never heard the melody until I needed a song. I never saw the white line till I was leaving you behind. I never knew I needed you till I was caught up in a bind. I never spoke I love you till I cursed you in vain. I never felt my heartstrings until I nearly went insane. I never saw the East Coast till I moved to the West. I never saw the moonlight until it shone off your breasts. I never saw your heart till someone tried to steal, tried to steal it away. I never saw your tears until they rolled down your face. So as the old saying goes, we never really appreciate anything until we no longer have it. And that is a sad commentary to go through life that way. Because, as I often say, the bad news has nothing to do with the fact that you and I are going to die. The bad news is we haven't a clue when. Act accordingly. And what is always getting in the way, again, of us being able to experience this moment and any moment as wondrous, as magnificent, is our expectations of the moment. And if we are willing to learn how to distinguish our expectations, the story about the moment, from the moment, from the reality of this moment, life takes on a completely different flavor. And our experience takes on a kind of minutely subtle, paradoxical, miraculous experience of whether there's one or whether there's 30, 
30 is 1 and 1 is 30. Every moment can be fulfilling if you approach it with an appreciation of it just as it is. I've been talking all day, so it's your turn. <laughs> First of all, a question. Who, who is the artist? Who wrote this? Yes. Tom Waits. Tom Waits. Ah, yes. Better recognize a little bit of it. Um, you better appreciate it, because I was in agony trying to find it <laughs> in time. Roshi, something that you were saying reminds me of aging. And I've been, as we've discussed in the past, many of the less than beneficial things of aging. One of the things I find with aging that I am enjoying is that I am not paying as much attention to the roadmap. Because I think ambition, in my case, really involves that roadmap a lot. Mm -hmm. And I'm kind of giving up some of those ambitions and I'm appreciating. Yeah. And ambition is really a, a, another word for expectations. Mm -hmm. Okay? And there is a saying that one never achieves success until one has really failed. Mm -hmm. Okay? So the truly successful people in life are the ones whose ambitions led to nowhere and failure and so forth. So yes, it's always about giving up what I want in order to see that I already have that and even more. Yeah. And I agree with you. As I get older, one of the, you know, uh, <coughs> a friend of mine, DePaul, used to say, youth is wasted on the young. Okay? Uh, because as you get older, I think we appreciate so much of what we had and enjoyed in our youth more. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think it's also easier. It's hard to reestablish friendships like you had when you were younger. And yeah. I find that, that my best friends are my old friends in mm -hmm. many ways. Yeah. It's interesting. Yeah. Thank you, Chico. Anyone else? So when we find ourselves in the course of the day, qualifying, testing, judging, critiquing any moment of the day, in that moment we are thieves, robbing ourselves of life. So it's kind of like, you know, uh, you know, being on this wondrous ride looking at the auto manual, you see, instead of just enjoying the ride. And so qualifying life, testing life, judging life, criticizing life, we need to learn is always robbing us of life. Robbing us of life. <coughs> so one of the ways I try to <coughs> talk about that is that if you go through life following the manual all the way through life, and if you go through life ignoring the manual all the way through life, both parties end up at the same place, the cemetery, you're saying. But what is different, I guarantee you, is the experience between those parties about the cemetery, you're saying. We are born and we die. How we live in the middle is entirely up to us. And how we live in the middle, as my teacher, the Holy, His Holiness, the Dalai Lama, used to say, 
A good life is dependent upon a good death, and a good death is dependent upon a good life. And what he meant by that, again, is, as I said a moment ago, when we stop, up, stop all this expectation of life, and we truly pour ourselves and immerse ourselves into the living of it, by the time we get to death, no big deal. No big deal. Most people's difficulty with death and dying has nothing to do with their fear of death and dying. It has to do with that little voice inside them that says, but you never really lived. I'm saying, but you never really lived. And that little voice reminding us, sorry, you don't get a second chance. This is it. I love the way uh, the writer says to us, harm to her words. Need a moment to find it, please. There is no alternate utopia running parallel to this life. This is it. There is no alternate utopia running parallel to this life. This is it. If you cannot see the kingdom of God now, you are never going to see it anywhere else. If you cannot find peace in your heart now, you are never going to find it anywhere else. If you cannot see love, as Rumi suggested when he said, your task is not to go in search of love, but to identify and dismantle all the mental and psychological and emotional barriers you created in your lifetime, preventing you from seeing it right here, right now. Same. So if you can't see love right here, right now, you're never going to find it anywhere else. Never going to find it anywhere else. Because there is no parallel universe uh, of utopia anywhere. This is it. This is your, you know, as a friend of mine used to say, this ain't no dress rehearsal. <laughs> this is it. This is it. What are you going to do with it? And in all of the ancient texts, in Revelations, for example, most people do not understand this text because it's been perverted like most texts. You know, the angel of God says, I give you life or death. I give you birth or death. Choose. Choose. At all times, we are choosing by the way in which, again, we are living our life. And when we are living our life from the story or the map, from, again, <coughs> the directions when we are living from that story, that map, or the directions alone, we are not really living life. And life does not wait for us because the spirit cares only about flying. As to who does the flying, it has but a passing interest. We all really want to be that little boy anyway again. There's so much freedom in those days. Wear diapers to the beach. <laughs> I wore diapers, they'd yell at me, arrest me, lock me up. <laughs> it's kind of like when uh, <coughs> some friends of mine from Japan were over here who trained in Ihoji in Kyoto. Um, one day they, they suggested going out and doing tokahatsu. Tokahatsu is the uh, uh, practice or training of begging in Japan. Monks 
go out and every day beg for the food that they bring back to the monastery and eat. And I said to him, no, no, you beg in this country, they lock you up. You, know, <laughs> you can't do that. <laughs> Anyone else? Welcome back, guys. Thank you. Um, sometimes in life, you know, you'll have like a spell where things are going well, and like today was a beautiful weather and that kind of thing. Things seem easier that way. And then, um, like, I live on a farm, and the manure spreader broke the other day. So, you know, shit piles up. <laughs> <laughs> but. Uh -huh. I used to get so, because I live on a very old farm, so things tend to break with a certain amount of regularity. And when I was going through a rough time in life, I was thinking, why? Why me? Why is this breaking? And then a week can't go by without something else breaking. And I was feeling like such a victim. And it was funny, because I went to a spiritualist group a while back, and so I was saying, I finally realized these are physical items. They don't run forever. I don't have anything to do with whether they're breaking or not. Maybe I could make <coughs> something a little better and extend its life, but it's not breaking just to spite me. Mm -hmm. And the one woman said, yeah, but if you raise your vibrational energy level up enough, you can prevent these things from breaking. <laughs> I thought, wow, even if you could do such a thing, how much time and effort could it take? Yeah. So yeah. it's kind of, you know, it's funny the way people think about life and a, yeah. our ability to impact it. Some things, I think, like what I was hearing, I've come here a few times, is that there's just acceptance, you know, you can't rail against things that are happening that you don't control. Yeah. That you yeah. can't control. Yeah. As you heard me mention this afternoon, uh, the first thing you hear from me when you come to train is that there is no magic here and I'm not a magician. Life, it, life just as it is, is magical enough. Even the breaking down of these things in our life can become a magical opportunity for us. I was telling this story uh, in one of my talks earlier this week. Uh, as you met today, we have a new puppy. And on this particular morning, I had gotten up uh, to, uh, as usual, to prepare the zendo around 4 or 4.30 in the morning uh, for the morning early dawn sitting. And so now that we have a new puppy, uh, Added to the process, usually, you know, around 3.30, 4 o'clock, I wake up, uh, put out my beagle before the puppy was here, and she goes out by herself. She's 13 and what have you. But now, because the puppy's only 12 weeks old, um, I've got to pick the puppy out of the box in my room that she sleeps in and carry her down the hallway, because if I don't carry her down the hallway, by the time she gets on the floor, she's peeing and pooping there, because puppies don't know how to hold it. So I carry her down the hallway and I get to the door where I usually leave the dogs out and it's pouring raining out there. So out she goes and she's running back in and I'm pushing her back out, she's running back in. 
So she went out and they came back in, I assuming that they had gone to the bathroom. And while they're out there, I'm doing some things, turning on the lights outside. So I'm moving all around doing this stuff and everything. The puppy comes back in, the beagle comes back in. I get the puppy over to the cage and I keep her in, in the living room when I can't be with her. And she pees all over me, my robes, and poops in the cage. Okay? All right? So immediately, the reaction of my conditioning showed up, began to surface. And I was about to go, and she looked at me in the face and went, and I started to laugh. Okay? And I was reminded of a saying, if you can't change the circumstance, change your attitude. And when I changed my attitude, when I changed my attitude about what was going on, it was a wonderful moment and a wonderful day. And the puppy was even more beautiful. And even the poop didn't smell so bad. Or the manure <laughs> in the machine. <laughs> so again, what is really at the cause of our suffering has nothing to do with life, the machine breaking down, or the dog peeing on you. It has to do with, again, our expectations, like the people that have to find some magic to fix life, that life should not break down. And this is one of the, uh, I think, most valuable teachings of the Buddha. And it's a teaching that in the West is so difficult to hear. And that is, everything is of the nature of impermanence. Nothing, no phenomena, no physical matter thing, whether we're talking about a machine or a human being, or some other life form, lasts. And it is in the embracing of not that philosophy, because it's not a philosophy, it is in the embracing of not that belief, because it's not a belief, but in the embracing of that fact that we are able to live with life as it is. Again, our, our discontentment in times has nothing to do with the puppy's behavior. It has to do with how you hold the puppy's behavior has nothing to do with the machine breaking down. It has to do with how you respond to the machine breaking down. It all has to do with that. It all has to do with that. You notice the little boy, when he noticed that he was being watched, he had a moment, she said, of shyness, or maybe even, you know, <coughs> you know whatever, shockness. But it didn't prevent him from running back into the ocean. You're saying? Just like it didn't prevent my puppy you know, my getting upset did not stop her from pooping and peeing again. <laughs> my dog does not care about my opinion <laughs> or whether I like her or not. I, can, I talked about this this afternoon. I can yell and scream at my dog and kick her in the butt and off her bone, and that's all she knows. <laughs> and life is the same. So going back to the story of the little boy running around in the water, coming back out, seeing the person, seeing them, and then running back in. Was the little boy's ego in play that second time? Because because he was showing off, basically? I don't think ego, no, I don't think ego comes into play for children. Just like one of the lessons I've learned as a parent uh, is we tend to think that when our children don't tell us the truth, they're lying. But science has proven that at that age, they, they, it's, they're not lying because there's no intention behind that behavior, okay? So, so if he's in diapers, he's what, two, three, maybe, okay? 
We don't have any intentions at that time. You say so. I would not say so. But so, but you, sometimes at age they can be what you would call very precocious, and they uh -huh. they will they will sort of show off for an audience. Mm -hmm. And I kind of wonder if that isn't some sort of conditioning that's starting to be developed there. I couldn't really answer that because again, that's a function of the parenting, isn't it? <coughs> at that age, everything we're learning about life is coming from our parents, or or maybe a function of. of the child themselves. Hmm. I mean, some children like to sh like to be hands. Some mm -hmm. some don't. Mm -hmm. It's kind of kind of yeah. interesting. Yeah. And yeah. even if it was, mm -hmm. there's I no guess. attachment to that for the child, and that's the beginner's mind. Yes. When we talk about embracing life as it is, and I talked about this this afternoon too. Again, as you've often heard me say, Chico, the error in spiritual practice is the notion of a, the eradication of ego. It's not about the eradication right. of ego. It's about the incorporation of ego in our daily living and learning how to navigate with it. So even if it was his ego, he was cute. Let's go <laughs> On the topic of eradication, should we be looking to enhance the five senses or suppress them as some doctrines see the five senses yeah. as sins to somehow be constrained that they yeah. limit our ability to reach a higher state of awareness yeah. is there a perspective from the Zen point of view on that? From the Zen point of view we are to eat when we are eating drink when we are drinking smell when we are smelling sleep when we are sleeping and there is even the uh, Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche <coughs> used to gather his students for mindfulness drinking and he would bring a <laughs> bottle of scotch <laughs> And they would learn how to mindfully taste the liquor and experience the liquor in their mouth and as it, how it felt in their bodies. So from Zen, there is no there, sin is more again about unskillfulness than it is about any inherent quality of the action or the thing itself. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I Years ago, way when TM first started, I got involved in that, and then I was with the Kripalu Society for a little bit uh -huh. on the edge, and there seemed to be an emphasis on sort of withdrawing from life. Yeah, yeah. that I found a little troubling, and yeah, you know that always approach enjoyed the Dallas or the Zen approach to yeah. really living life fully yeah. as compared to, you know, it's quite easy to find enlightenment in, to, in a room over here with no distractions and anything else and sure. can get a nice energy buzz going on. And, but, but what did that really have to do when you came out into the real world and you were confronted with right. well, the guy down the street who didn't fix your car yeah. or, you know, a toothache yeah. or what have you? Yeah. you? yeah, it's like the saying goes, it's easy to be a holy man on a mountain. Yeah. Okay, in Zen, we want to be holy in the streets. We want to be holy with the guy down the street who messes up your car and what have you. And again, uh, that has to do with how we see and approach. Now, the Buddha said, you know, he one day he compared Buddhism to uh, a musical instrument. And so there was a young lady playing a violin type instrument at that time. 
And he turned to his disciples and he said, Now listen, if she ties it too tight, it will break. And too loose, it will not play. And it was from that moment that Buddhism got the, the title of the middle way. And that's what he was pointing to. He also rejected all forms of asceticism. He had tried that himself mm -hmm. for a long time and rejected it. So again, it's, a, it's about taking that middle position and balancing all of that. Or as Buddha Franklin would say, in moderation all things. You know, mm -hmm. particularly, especially in sin. A <laughs> little bit is okay. A little bit is okay. A little bit of sin is Glad okay. Actually, <laughs> I have an idea for an event. Yes, <laughs> I know where you're going to go with this. <laughs> Rabbi and I talked about it. We're going to do it. <laughs> yes. But it's going to be by invitation only. <laughs> Anyone else? Thank you. Thank you. I know Desai. Him and I have known each other for years. Yeah. Were you there when he was there? Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's interesting, you, you're from Riverton or Pensauken. Uh, yeah. We had a little outreach center in Audubon. I don't know if you even remember. We, mm. We're talking mid-70s at that yeah. point. Yeah, yeah. And uh, it was a TM center next door to kind of yoga outreach, health, food, cooperative bookstore. Uh -huh. that, uh, yeah. I, I just, you know, I started going that path, and I, I just couldn't. Bring myself to make brooms for the rest of my life. I don't know why. It just it wasn't that compelling. I hear you. I thought he was a hippie. <laughs> Me? <laughs> a hippie roadie from way back. Okay. Yeah. Anyone else? So take a moment to really consider for yourself how much in the course of one day in fact you can take six hours the first six hours of your day and just take a moment to reflect on this you can even close your eyes and look at your day today or if you prefer yesterday and how much of in the course of that six hours had you had you spent thinking about your life that is thinking about the day thinking about what was going on qualifying it, judging it, testing it, and so forth, comparing it to some idea. Even when it is good times, the Buddha said, we don't enjoy the good times. Because like possibly you said today, with how beautiful the weather was, you know, wouldn't it be great if it was like this tomorrow? We even mess up the good experiences in our life by wanting more. And when we are, find the weather not the way we want it to be, we want something better or different. You know we are never really content. And that discontentment does not come with us at birth. It is something we learn early on in childhood. We find ourselves entrapped in the wheel of samsara or suffering. And the wheel of suffering is the wheel of more, better, and different. More better and different. So even if we enjoyed ourselves today with the beautiful weather, we really did not get to really know the beautiful weather. 
perhaps the day for some people, again, as I mentioned earlier today, I know some people who may have today thought it was a terrible day because their allergies were spiked by the different temperature of the day. Okay. So it's always about my perspective, my point of view about the day. Mm -hmm. And that's what I'm really experiencing in the course of the day. When we are willing to just give that all up and just breathe in, and by that I mean, again, both metaphorically and really, breathe in the experience of the moment and experience that, experience that breath. And that's what the training in mindfulness and meditation is about. Experiencing the breath as it enters the body, just that breath, not the next breath, not anticipating the exhale, but being fully communing with the inhale and then when exhaling, fully commune with the exhale and so forth. When we train in that way, the expectation starts to drop because the mind begins to get focused on just this. But that takes training after a lifetime of being distracted by everything else. Being distracted by our desires for things to be different or more or better. I leave the bedroom. I begin walking through my house. I will traverse it many times today, like a creature covering her turf. It is a journey that zigzags and returns upon itself, a circumambulation, a re-remembering of place. I know this is the way many ancients prayed, circling a holy site to deepen their devotion. I wonder if animals offer their speechless prayers by scudding over their well-known ground. <laughs> My foot rises before it falls. There is a tiny moment when, night, when neither of my feet are really carrying weight. A suspension, a moment of physical trust. Something in me knows that the ground will still be there. Let me return to this innate knowledge, this ancient confidence. The floor in this house is wood, wide old boards. When I walk, I am walking on the wood and in the woods. I am walking on the life of these trees. They have been cut and planed, offered up for this sheltering. Let me remember to offer myself to be shelter for something in your world. My foot falls, the ground rises to meet it. A holy, ordinary moment is repeating itself. All the time I am meeting and being met like this. Your whole creation is ground. Help me to remember that in this mutuality, we can become home for each other. You are asking us slowly to become your holy sight. So in Zen spirituality, Zen training, again, everything matters. How we sit and the attention we give to the details of our meditating, 
the focusing on the breath and following our breath has to do with learning to pay attention to the details of the moment, to the stuff going on in the moment. And so when sitting and meditating, we follow our breath. Because in the course of the day, the only time our breath even surfaces in our awareness is when something causes us to not be able to breathe. Like Tom Waits' words, perhaps I never know the breath until I can no longer breathe. I often say to people having COPD, if you want to know what breathing is like, talk to someone with emphysema. They can tell you what the breath really feels like. In my own personal experience, not only with my health, but thinking about my brother who some uh, 40 years ago died in the 80s when AIDS first showed up in this country. I talk about how I moved home and lived with my family to help take care of him uh, the year and a half that I did before he died. And on one particular evening, uh, he and I uh, laid on the lounge chairs out back by my family's pool. It was a spring night. The wind was very gentle, and the experience was a very holy one for me, a very intimate experience. And by then, he was very weak. He had very little energy. His body looked like the body of someone who came out of the uh, camps in Auschwitz, and yet he still had some level of consciousness in the moment. And I watched him struggle to breathe in and to breathe out because his spleen, his, his, his body fat, his belly fat was gone. And what appeared to be his belly was actually his spleen swollen, uh, swollen up. So everything for him was an effort. And something inside me wanted to ask him the question, how does that feel? How does dying feel? And I said to him, and this was a very privileged kid, unlike my siblings, my twin and I, my father spoiled this kid rotten. Uh, you know, he never had to work a day in his life. He had everything, everything that, that any, any kid could ever want. So it wasn't <coughs> like uh, <coughs> he didn't have anything. So I asked him, if there was anything in life you could have right now given to you, uh, what would that be? And uh, it was, again, a very quiet moment. And I watched him slowly lift his hand and his finger like this. And he pointed here, and he took a breath as best as he could, and he whispered, more of that. Let's say, more of that, he said. So, um, again and again, Every moment can be as sacred and as precious as you can imagine. You don't need to go to a, a mountain to find that. You don't need to be just inside a cathedral to experience that. When you know how to be in that moment. And unfortunately for most of us, again, as Tom Waits suggests in his words, we don't get that until it's too late. We don't appreciate what we have until it's gone. But we don't have to. We can fully appreciate and find the joy and the happiness and the contentment in this moment if we see this moment 
and seize this moment, just as a dying person like my brother did. More of that. More of this, just this, just this. So again, in meditation, the technique is designed to bring the mind from this distracted state or way of being, wandering in the story of life, about life, to here, to where life is going on. In the practice of Kinhin, which is our walking meditation, which is what I always think about when I read this one poem that I just shared with you, it is, again, attentiveness to each step you make and making each step you take. By making it, I mean consciously aware of feeling the floor beneath your feet. And most people don't appreciate how I feel about that in their training when most people are complaining about how cold the floor is in the Zendo. No say. So Katagiri Roshi had experienced that with Natalie Goldberg, the author who wrote a fabulous book called Long Quiet Highway, which was about her experience as his student in Minnesota. And one day, and in Minnesota, it gets 40 degrees below zero, okay? So just to get an idea, because I was there and I've seen it, uh, at 40 degrees below zero, if you have a bottle of water and you pour the water out, the water freezes before it hits anything. Okay? So that's how cold it is. So she talks about in this part of her book about how she would get on the bus at the other end of the town to get to Katagiri's place for the early dawn sitting. And obviously it was freezing cold and she would sit in the zenda with him sometimes all alone. <coughs> Another version that gets to experience that. And uh, she would complain about the cold. And Katagiri would say to her, Natalie, eat the cold. Eat the cold. So the training is designed again to bring us intimately in contact with life. And life is not the comfort of the, of the couch. Life is the cold on your feet. The Buddha said, life is inconvenience. Life is suffering, he said. And it is in the suffering that we get to really fully appreciate the life. Anyone else? Many times today, I will, walk, I will cross over a threshold. I hope I will catch a few of those times. I need to remember that my life is, in fact, a continuous series of thresholds. From one moment to the next from one thought to the next, from one action to the next. Help me appreciate how awesome this is. How many are the chances to be really alive, to be aware of the enormous dimension we live within? <coughs> On the threshold, the entire past and the endless future rush to meet one another. They take hold of each other and laugh. They are so happy to discover themselves <coughs> in the awareness of a human creature. On the threshold, the present, break, the present break all boundaries. It is a convergence 
of fellowship with all time and space. We find you there, and we are found by you there. Help me cross into the present moment, into wonder, into grace, that now place where we all are, unfolding moment by moment. Let me live on the threshold as threshold. I've been talking all day. I can go to bed now if you like. <laughs> I, I think one or two uh, meetings we attended a while ago, you may have mentioned that you were watching uh, The Young Pope. Yes. So uh, unless it's too audacious of me to ask, uh, the Pope was frequently asking, when did you get your calling? Is there a story you can share with us or is it too personal when you got your calling? My mother says I came out of the womb this way. <laughs> but my earliest memory was at, at seven. Yeah. That's all I'll tell you. Very interesting. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Rushing, um, if being in the moment, and we've talked about, you've talked about this before, where we, there's your memories. Uh, excuse me. Did, have you seen it? Did you see Young Pope? I did. Yeah, it's great. I, I love it. Well, did you see in the news how the current Pope has taken his arch enemy and sent him to Guam? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, the young Pope sends you to Anchorage, Alaska. Yeah. <laughs> is this a movie? Or is it's a, a, it's a uh, HBO series. Oh, okay. Yeah, very good. Uh, yeah. Who's the actor playing the Pope? Oh, Jude, no, Jude, like, Jude Law. Jude Law. Is it Jude Law? Yeah. yeah. Hmm. It's a very good series. You should watch it, Jigger. You'd appreciate it. Go ahead. <laughs> Um, I was just thinking that we've talked in the past about how, and PTSD, I guess, is like this too, is memory can be so strong that you're back in that moment again. And say that you're also anticipating the future. So I guess what I'm getting at is what is the harm in reliving a memory and being in that moment as opposed to the present moment? And it, if it doesn't cause suffering. Yeah. <coughs> the... <coughs> <clears throat> the problem with that is something, again, you've heard me talk about numerous times, and I talked about again this afternoon. Our memory is a fictional account of what really happened. Neuroscience, mm -hmm. for example, neuroscience has proven that what the brain does with memory of an event, let's say 10 years ago, is recreate that event at least a thousand times so that the memory I have right now of that event is not really the event. But isn't that consistent with my experience of the moment right now is not really this moment, it's my experience of this moment. And your work or your practice or your training is to cut through, through what that. prevents you to being in this moment. And that's impossible with the past or the future because it's not here. Right, because the past is an illusion and the future is a fool's idea. It doesn't exist. Right. The only thing that really exists is now. <coughs> and yes, what is always preventing us, again, what I've been talking about so far all night and in the relationship seminar this afternoon, what is always preventing us from being in the moment is our ego's inherent uh, tendency to want to recreate the moment according to our point of view. So we're always uh, polluting the moment 
with our good moment, bad moment mentality. So being in the moment it is more than just being present and not thinking about the past or the future, but also seeing the moment for what it truly is. Right, and not seeing it conceptually, seeing it experientially. That is why of all of the schools, Zen became the one I chose because it's a sensual training. It has to do with experiencing the truth rather than conceptualizing it. And meditation is absolutely necessary to do that. Absolutely. You don't bother talking to me about being spiritual unless there is a meditation practice. Right. Which is regular and consistent. Yeah. It's impossible to see this. Right. And and that's the message of the Buddhist story itself. Mm-hmm. I mean, he came to his enlightenment, you know, after years and years of training first in this practice of meditation, samadhi meditation as it was called in his day, the Japanese call it zazen. He <laughs> after years and years of training in that, the 7 days that led up to his enlightenment was just that. Mm-hmm. He sat and he meditated. The, those were the gateways that was the gate to his enlightenment mm-hmm. so how anyone can think they can achieve this apart from a contemplative approach to life uh, I don't know where they get that from Merck pardon me? from Merck from Merck <laughs> yes thank you I'll use that talking about the Pope and um the Pope, uh, a couple of years back, wrote a letter, and he seems to be having all this problem with uh, the very uh, right-wing part of the church. That, And he feels... Everyone's having a problem with the right-wing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, I, but their, their clericalism and... Does Zen Buddhism is pretty free from that? Isn't it? Um, and if, because well, is that a, is that a result of religion versus a way of life? Well, Zen Buddhism is not necessarily free of it as much as it sees it again from a completely different place. Right. Okay? Right. The, okay? All of that, the rituals, the liturgy, the meditation, is a means toward... It's the finger pointing at the moon as the koan goes. Right. Okay? <clears throat> Whereas, you know, in, in the church... It's the moon. It's considered the moon. Okay, uh, we we throw the baby out with the bathwater mm-hmm. in 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 conventional religion. Mm-hmm. Okay, because what matters is the container right. rather than the person in the container. Right. Yeah, yeah. So Zen's emphasis uh, is that this this awakening to mm-hmm. is something that exists apart from written or spoken word. But it doesn't deny the importance and value of, you know, inquiry, questioning, debating, these kinds of talks. But as you often have heard me say in the past, here we get to talk about it. On the cushion, we get to do it. Okay, but we can't get to do it here. (laughs) Hey, how about coming up here again, Joe? Yes, sir. You can join us. Yeah. That's like a peanut gallery up there or something. <laughs> no, he had to sit up there because the room was packed this afternoon. So. Okay.
Um, I, I forget your name. Wayne. Wayne. When he when Wayne spoke about the five senses, and uh, I guess when I really started, maybe starting to understand what this present moment meant and the the, the practice of it, I I think that was my. Um, those were my windows to really see where I was at all the time, because I started seeing that. My eyes were, I only wanted to see beautiful things. I only wanted to eat the best food. I don't, and, and so I started really seeing like the, uh, how the little voice was coming through all my different senses. You know, I only wanted to touch the nice things. I didn't want to hear the ugly things, all this stuff. And so that was my, that was some of my first introduction to um, really coming back to this moment and seeing what was right in front of me. Yeah. Instead of listening to what I wanted, you know, instead of listening or, or only hearing what I wanted to hear. And then I started really listening to people that I didn't want to listen to. Or I started, I started seeing things beyond what I wanted to see, you know. Yeah. And the, and the Buddha taught that even pleasure can be a cause for suffering mm -hmm. when we attach ourselves to it. Mm -hmm. So even the profound, mm -hmm. you know, if you had uh, in, attempted to... Uh, what's the proselytize your healthy living with me one more time? I was going to comment that Stephen Hawking's is not defined by his body, mm -hmm. or the wheelchair. You see, so it, again, even we need to even be careful that we don't become attached to spiritual practice. You know, and the the Hasid in the Jewish tradition. Uh, practice something very similar in the Zen Buddhist tradition. Uh, and so the Hasid, as if you know, know who I mean, are the most strictest, you know, uh, by the book, by the law, uh, part of Judaism. <coughs> and they have a practice where once a year the Rebbe is required to lock himself off from the rest of the community, uh, completely away from the community, and do everything that he is not permitted to do the rest of the year. Yeah. So usually what they do is they get wasted, okay? So they go into a room and, you know, they, they look at dirty <laughs> magazines, of, you know, because it's that whole sexual thing. And they're supposed to, one day of the year they get to do that. They get to do that one day out of the year. And it's not intended to, like, be... Oh God, the years oh thank God. Have some fun. No, it's that's not the point. The point is again to keep them balanced mm -hmm. and not attached to the law. The law is only good as long as the law benefits us toward awakening. It's not about keeping the law. The law is the means towards awakening. And when the law becomes the awakening for us, we've missed the whole point. Uh there's a wonderful story of Suzuki Roshi. Uh, he had uh, a fairly new student that he put in charge of preparing the tea bowls and tea for during the breaks in Sashin. So he was in his room, observe, he was in uh, an opposite room from where the tea is set up for everyone to enjoy during breaks. And he watched this student line up the tea bowls in a straight line and pour the tea into each of the bowls. And he noticed how she made sure that every single bowl had the same amount of tea that every other bowl had, okay? 
because he had given a talk that morning on equanimity <laughs> and what have you. So he didn't say a word to her. He didn't come out and talk to her about that. But what he did do was he came out and he started at one end of the table and walked down the other end. And while he did, he put his finger in every bowl. <laughs> so attachment to the teachings is prohibited also. <laughs> if, you, uh, <coughs> if you train in some of the other uh, trainings that come out of the Zen Buddhist tradition, such as <coughs> archery and the various different art trainings, such as uh, Sumei and what have you, but particularly when you train in Bushido, or the Way of the Sword, which comes out of the Zen tradition, uh, you go and you find a sword master, and you ask to be an apprentice. And they do this also in Spanish riding schools. And so you go, and there's a story about this one student who went, found a master who would take him in, and he was expecting, you know, to be taught how to, you know, fight with the sword. And the master hands him a broom and tells him to sweep. And he does this. He has him come in and sweep the dojo every day. That's all he gets to do, sweep the dojo every day. And one day the uh, student complains, I came here to learn sword fighting. And the master said, just sweep, and what have you. And a week later, uh, the boy comes in and he's sweeping. And while he's sweeping, the master uh, sneaks up behind him and hits him with a stick and runs. And... He continues sweeping, and then he sweep, sneaks up at another time, hits him with the stick, and runs. And this goes on for a long period of time, too. Until one day, the master sneaks up with him and goes to hit him with the stick, and the boy picks the broom up and blocks the stick. And the master said, now you're learning how to fight with a sword. You see? So, go. Wipe off, wipe off. Right. Game of Thrones. Yeah. She was stuck sweeping. Yes. Yeah. 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 I remember that. <laughs> so, anyone else? You're supposed to be entertaining me, not the other way. <laughs> I want to read you uh, one more, and then I'm done talking for the day. You'll appreciate this, Genjo. Peeling, chopping, cutting, mincing, slicing, measuring, pouring, stirring, poaching, bubbling, frying, turning, simmering, serving. These are words I cook with. They are all motion, all process. I know as I create this meal, there is another cooking going on. It too is all motion all process, an inner transformation. Help me to give myself away as easily as this carrot, this new potato. I want my layers to be peel to, I want my layers to peel away like the onions. I want to be as empty and clean as the universe in a sweet green pepper with its white star seeds. I want 
I want. In the heat of your will, help me to give up wanting. I am so full of urgency, expectation, image, I make myself spiritually hungry. You are here. Therefore, there is everything to receive. The Buddha said, nothing is lost, nothing is gained. Every moment is complete, just as it is. Nothing lacking. We do not need to go looking. It's right in front of us. We do not need to do anything special. It's all special, if you know how to be with it. Well, that's all I got. You got anything, Emyo? I'm still stuck on mindfulness drinking. <laughs> Come and see. God bless Chogyam Trungpa. Crazy wisdom, that's what his Dharma name means. Yeah. He was a, one of the greatest teachers. He was a drunk, but he was one of the greatest <laughs> teachers. The story goes that towards the end of his life, he was always drunk. He was coming to Dharma teachings drunk. Oh my goodness. Mm -hmm. and, but there's a wonderful story uh, of his relationship with one of his students. And this was a student that did not trust himself at all. He had very low self-esteem. And Chogram wanted to teach him, how to, teach him that he could trust himself. And he went to such an extent that the house that he lived in was like three or four stories. So the stairway to the top floor was this, uh, you know, three, four flights of stairs that would get to the top where his room was. And so he, f he felt that it was such an urgent, desperate lesson to be learned sooner than later. This kid was so insecure about himself, so had such low self-esteem, the Chogun went to the degree uh, of having him one night wait down at the bottom of the steps. And, and Chogun said in so many words, he wanted him to learn that he trusted him. And the boy was, you know, spewing back to his teacher how he was not trustworthy and all. And Chogun says, yes, you are. And the next thing that happens is Trungpa throws himself down the steps. And he just goes down, <laughs> tumbles down the flights of steps and the boy reaches out to catch him before he hits the ground and what have you. And at that moment, it says, the story goes that the boy was transformed, that his teacher would trust him. But his teacher felt that the need for this boy to, to love himself and believe in himself merited him throwing his own body down the steps. Now, again, he was probably drunk. <laughs> <laughs> Which helped the way he hit each step. But the lesson was learned. <laughs> God bless him. I think one night, one Zen chat, I'll show you the video of Chogim Trungpa. While a crazy wisdom. An amazing man he was. He was Japan? In Japan? No, he was, he was Tibetan. Oh, Tibetan. Yeah, he was one of the Rinpoches. Colorado. Yeah. Where was Colorado, Colorado, yeah. He found Naropa. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, he found the Naropa. He was in England before, though, wasn't he? Yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he, wa he was so, back to what you were talking about earlier, he was so, uh, 
he was so ingrained in the notion that everything mattered that one day he had his school of students, they had to learn the British discipline of a military. And he had them all dress up. He bought all these British uniforms. They dressed up and they marched in formation and learned the rituals of shooting. He had cannons at Naropa. He had cannons on the ground. You know, they would raise the flag and boom! And it was to break their anti, you know, British rule, anti-military rule. It's kind of like he would have them wear red hats, make America great again, while meditating. (laughs) And uh, so whatever whatever it was they were stuck on, he would have them do just that. So it was a time of you know it was a time of the peace movement and everything. And they were very anti-military, and he knew nothing about the American military, but being, again, uh, in Great Britain, he had the whole British, he, he practically moved, you know, Buckingham Palace over, you know, all the, he had them dress up one night, and they had, you know, dressed up in royal form, you know, dressing, and he had the candlelights, the candelabras on the table, and he had people serving as butlers and what have you. He felt that if... You can't really, you know, criticize anything until you have experienced it, okay? Until you had really experienced it. So if you were anti-Trump, he'd have you go vote for Trump. This event is really starting to take form now. (laughs) (laughs) It seems to me that mindfulness drinking and cannons don't mix. (laughs) Someone give this guy a drink. (laughs) Mindfulness drinking in red caps. I don't think they were drinking and blowing the cannons at that. <laughs> he might have been. It was a wonderful character, Chogum. Yeah. Anyone else? Well, thank you for the privilege of being with you today.